ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon donate button and join the Table of Ranks. One shared feature between Russia and the United States is that both expanded across the vast continent to the Pacific Ocean. But while Russia is recognized as an empire, whether the United States was also an empire remains a matter of debate. This is despite the fact that both the Russian and American experience of colonization shared many features, territorial expansion and incorporation, the practice of settler colonialism, and the displacement and destruction of native peoples. So how do the Russian and American experience of internal colonization compare? I talked to Stephen Sabol for some insight. Stephen Sabol is Associate Professor of History at North Carolina University in Charlotte, specializing in the history of Russia and Central Asia, imperialism and colonialism, and the American West. He's the author of The Touch of Civilization, Comparing American and Russian Internal Colonization, published by University Press of Colorado. Here's Stephen Sabol. So your book, The Touch of Civilization, Comparing American and Russian Internal Colonization, examines the continental expansion of the United States and Russia in the 19th century. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about the United States and Russia as comparable continental empires. Well, the most obvious example is, is simply the contiguous nature of their expansion. Um, and this has been noted by other uh, historians and scholars uh, before me in that, you know, you have one uh, state expanding eastward and the other state expanding westward. And it, so geography is the most uh, obvious um, comparison that one can make. The other thing that I noticed uh, well before I even started this project is having spent so much time uh, in particularly in Kazakhstan, um, it's just the nature of the steppe and the, the, the sort of physical features of the steppe and having spent a fair amount of time um, in the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming and so forth, you, you, you can't help but notice these similarities between the plains and the steppes. And so the, the, as continental empires, you can see how the terrain leads to this expansion. And so for me, the uh, initial appeal uh, was this, this comparison between the steppes and the plains and then the nature of the people who, who lived there, the, the nomadic peoples, and in this case being the Kazakhs and the Sioux. And so for, for me, starting this project, it was, it was really the similarities um, of geography that uh, led me to explore it a little bit further. It's interesting that you actually mentioned the, the geographical similarities as a starting point, uh, because this is actually something that Russians and Americans both 
recognized in the 19th century. I mean, you have these comparisons of Russians and Americans and saying and finding some sort of kindred relationship in the fact that, you know, the United States has this prairie and the Russians have a steppe and this vast open continental span of space. So it's actually quite interesting that this is your uh, starting point for, for a comparative empire. But one of the things that, of course, is contentious that you point out in your um, introduction, and that is just conceptualizing the United States as an empire is is quite rare, um, whereas in Russia, it's just normative. So I wanted to point out something, ask you about something that you wrote, and that is, you write that the United States colonized, but it had no colonies. The United States was an empire, but not imperial. The Russian empire colonized but it had no colonies. Russia was, however, imperial. So what do you mean by colonization without colonies and empire and imperial in this context? In that sense, um, and, and I, I struggled with uh, that statement, and I, I find it interesting that, that you, you pointed out, because um, when I first started the, the, the research, I was struck by the fact that um, it's not until about 1898 in the Spanish-American War that Americans began to um, seriously discuss this this notion of colonies and of imperial expansion into the Philippines and and Hawaii and these sorts of things. The the, the notion of the overseas empire was very prominent, I think, in American thinking, um, and so they tended to ignore the the manner in which the territory is incorporated into the empire in this contiguous nature um, as being one of a, a uh, well, manifest destiny is the term that's that's most uh, most widely known. And so they they expand into this territory, they incorporate this territory, and so they're colonizing it through settlement, through administration. Uh, but they're not referring to it in any respect as as a colony or even a you know they they call it a territory, um, and with Russia it's simple annexation and it's it's a similar sort of process of expansion, incorporation, um, but they're not referring to it as as colonies, but they are colonizing through settlement through the administration of these newly incorporated territories. And so it then comes down to the way in which um, each population views their expansion. Uh, they don't perceive it, uh, certainly in the United States, as an imperial expansion that is any way comparable to uh, what the British were doing in, in Asia or in Africa, the same with the French um, or the Dutch or the Spanish in, in Latin America. And so that's why it's it's in part there's not the imperial attitude. It's there's not this this um, self definition that um, would be used to perhaps um, see this expansion as a, a comparable imperial expansion, similar to what the Europeans were doing in the 18th and 19th century. And so it's a statement in part about attitude, self perception. Um, and yet the Russians do refer to the empire as an empire. They, they do see themselves as comparable to the Europeans, whereas the United States rejects it. And they reject it not to channel Rumsfeld, but they, 
they channel it as a sort of um, um, rejection of what the Europeans were doing, that, that we're doing something different, whereas the Russians, um, they do hold themselves up to the other Europeans and see themselves as, as this expanding empire, um, but without colonies. And it's not until uh, Turkestan is incorporated that Turkestan is perceived as a colony, very different than the steppe in, 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 or Siberia. You know, as you, as you rightly say, the Russians saw themselves as, as an empire and they saw themselves as part of a European tradition of empire. Um, and the United States didn't. They rejected this, that, that their, their expansion across the North American continent was, it was different or they rejected the European imperialism. So how did the Americans uh, explain expansion uh, westward to themselves? Almost in a divine right sense. Uh, that, that's, that's what uh, Manifest Destiny seems to represent, um, that there really was no obstacle um, to that expansion, this, this notion of um, you know, the, the sea to sh shining sea, um, that um, the, the United States, certainly after 1803 and the Louisiana Purchase, um, you, you get this notion uh, that the United States um, needs to incorporate the entire continent. Um, and then after 1848, of course, you get the international boundaries that, that clearly separate Canada from the United States. That, that dispute has been resolved. And certainly after the Mexican-American War, uh, the southern border is, is pretty much um, firmly established um, as well. And so it's, it's between... Uh, California and, and let's say the East Coast, Virginia, Maryland, uh, what's in the middle? And what they oftentimes um, neglected were the people there in the middle and didn't think about these people as having their own you know, right to the land, their own right to their own history and culture and, and, uh, and these sorts of things. And so for the United States, there was, there was almost um, a zealous... Um, perception that um, you have all of this abundant land that is not being used, not being exploited. And who better to do that than, as Jefferson said, the yeoman farmer, uh, you know, the, the, the agrarian ideal. And so a, almost a religious mission to um, expand across the continent and to, to settle um, this, this wilderness um, and we then, you know, tended to, particularly in the 19th century, glorify it and celebrate it um, in a way that I don't know that the Russian Empire ever did. Um, it's certainly, you know, the, the Russians, I think they had a mixed attitude about the peasants uh, heading eastward. They didn't want them to go unmanaged. And yet at the same time, they provide a population that provides security, that provides um, some sense of... Um, legitimate occupation uh, to this land. And yet at the same time, they try to restrict it um, consistently throughout the 19th century until the 1890s when um, they realized the utility of having Russian peasants uh, occupying the land and, and trying to work the land. The, the Sioux and uh, Kazakhs serve as case studies to understand uh, American and Russian colonization. So why did you focus on the Sioux and the Cossacks? 
originally, uh, when I first conceived of the project, um, I was um, considering doing something that, that considered Central Asia and uh, the uh, American Great Plains, the, the, the interior between the East and West Coasts. Um, which would have uh, led me to incorporate all sorts of uh, different tribes, different peoples. Uh, and in part, I was driven by this notion that you have both sedentary and nomadic peoples occupying uh, these territories. And the, the more um, I, I started to read about um, American history and, and American expansion and uh, American and, and uh, Native American relations, it it seemed to, to make the comparison even more complex, and than I thought I could tackle. But then the other thing that um, occurred to me while doing the research is at the point of of real consolidation of these regions, what you had were two very powerful nomadic peoples that were major obstacles to the incorporation of this territory and the expansion beyond this territory, and that was the Sioux and the Kazakhs. The other thing that that uh, made the, the, uh, the decision an easy one for me was my own previous research into Kazakh-Russian relations. And so I had a, a sense of a very strong, a personal sense of a strong background in that side of the story that led me to think, okay, if, if the Sioux were equally this major obstacle, that should be the people that I use for the comparison. And so that's, that was really the, uh, the thinking behind the decision to um, explore Sioux-American relations and Russian-Kazakh relations in this comparison. And how did the first contacts between, say, Russians moving eastward and Americans moving westward, what were the first contacts with the Sioux and Kazakhs like? My own sense is that they were relatively peaceful, um, that um, trade is is what uh, prompted some of it. Um, and helped to sort of promote these relations. But over time, as sedentary populations of peasants or pioneers would move through, one of the things they tended to do was obstruct the, the nomadic routes, the traditional uh, movement of uh, the Sioux and the Kazakhs, which would lead to uh, various degrees of, of disputes. Um, and so I think the, the early contacts were relatively um, stable, peaceful, um, but in time, as the, as relations deteriorated, that's when you would begin to see the martial um, reactions. Uh, Sioux or the Kazakhs trying to resist uh, movement through the territories, um, and it ultimately comes down to a question of control of the land and control of the resources. And so it's over time that the relationships deteriorate. But initially, I think the, the relationships were um, were beneficial to each um, through, through trade, through um, mechanisms to provide security for each other as well. Yeah, one of the things I was struck was how Russian and American expansion into Sioux and Kazakh areas 
occur almost around the same time when they when they really start moving forward. Um, so after this initial contact where the relations are, are somewhat mutual and then um, things begin to break down, what is the the driving push for to go in and have settlers and have to consolidate land and consolidate control of the land and then taking that next extra step of administering over these two people these two nomadic peoples in part it's 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 the availability of what seems to be fertile land and so in both cases one of the things that struck me is that it, it the state tended to follow the settlers um, and then tried to manage that settlement in order to um, to reduce tensions um, with these nomadic populations um, the the when the peasants or the pioneers would go in what they're looking at is just this abundance of land and nobody's there no one's occupying it and so they they look at this available land and certainly in the American case uh, where the demographics are so very different between the Sioux and the Kazakhs, um, you have so much more available land or seemingly available land that is not being utilized, not being exploited to, you know, for its agricultural bounty. And so the, the, the states tend to then have to react to um, the, 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 these, these, peasants and pioneers who are settling on land that the, the, the nomads would use, but would use periodically. And so they would, they would look at the land and just say, well, if no one's there, it's free, it's available. And so the state tended to have to react to these increased uh, tensions over peasants or pioneers settling on land that the nomadic people um, would exploit in a, uh, a a periodic fashion, and I think also too there was this this notion of, of of what constitutes civilized people, and nomads were not regarded as civilized people. These are they they have aimless wanderings, so to speak, and and so they're not exploiting nature to its fullest, and they they saw. Um, agrarian uh, exploitation of the land as being sort of higher on the civilized scale. And so each state wanted to then make this land available for farmers, for people to, you know, grow wheat, grow grains. And, um, and as a farmer, you look and you see all of this land, it's hard not to settle on it and say, okay, time to grow wheat. The problem is they're trying to settle also in areas that really require extensive irrigation because they're so arid. And, um, and that meant settling near um, water resources, which the nomads also have to use. And that's, that's where some of the tensions um, also existed. Yeah, the issue of, of perception um, is, is another theme within, within your book. And, and one of the things that you do write in, in terms of this um, is that, of course, there's Sioux in, in Kazakh resistance to this colonization, um, particularly once it starts getting more into the use of, of military forces, especially. And 
So how did what talk about a bit about how Kazakhs and Sioux resisted um, American and Russian colonization, and how did this resistance reinforce American and Russian perceptions of Sioux and Kazakhs? It's it's in both cases in the latter part of the expansion and sort of settlement of the land that the Sioux and Kazakhs um, used that you start to get the the serious martial resistance. Um, but in both cases, the it, it's it's sporadic. Um, nomad, nomadic peoples have a tendency to um, to fissure. Um, it, it they can't exploit the land um, as nomadic peoples in the same way that sedentary peoples do. Um, they do have to move, but they it's not aimless wandering, and they they know where they have to move. They know uh, where the resources are. Um, for their, in the case of the Kazakhs, for their livestock. In the case of the Sioux, they understood where the buffalo uh, would move. They understood where the water resources uh, were located for uh, for both human consumption as well as their, their their horses and their livestock. And so uh, the resistance um, initially, I would argue, was was one of movement. Um, one of the one of the strengths for both the the Sioux and the Kazakhs was the fact that they did have these uh, these vast territories um, where they could move, and so the 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 Sioux and the Kazakhs to avoid conflict oftentimes would move away from where people were settling or where they were exploiting the the natural resources that they may need, but in time, as you get more and more peasants and more and more pioneers settling in these these areas, um, you have to provide some sort of martial resistance, and that's not at all unusual um, in, in the fact that you know people would fight over the natural resources. That had been the case: Kazakhs against Uzbeks, or Kazakhs against Tatars, or Bashkirs, or uh, or Dungans, or whoever they may be fighting. The same with the Sioux fighting against the Blackfeet or the Cheyenne or or other tribes. They're fighting over these these natural resources and access to them in, in these territories. Um, and in time, what would happen is the Russians or the Americans would replace who had been those those traditional enemies that they had been fighting over for, for territory and the natural resources. And so they're, they're merely, in some respects, substituting uh, their old enemies for these new enemies, these new, uh, th- these new uh, intruders into uh, the territory. So it's, uh, it's, it, fighting for these natural resources was not uncommon. What's, what becomes um, comparable in this sense is now you're fighting people who don't have any intention of leaving uh, in the way that maybe the Bashkirs or the Tatars or the Uzbeks or the Blackfeet or the Cheyenne might have in the past. And how did this? How did the um, Americans and Russians respond to this resistance? And, and how did this resistance reinforce how they understood these mm-hmm. peoples? Um, Nothing. Well, in a, in a very uh, general sense, nothing was going to stop the expansion, and nothing was going to stop either state from providing the security for uh, their populations to settle on this abundant uh, and underutilized land. And so that's why I say that the, uh, the the state tended to then follow where the peasants or the pioneers were settling to provide that that security for their people. Uh, and the fact that the Sioux and the Kazakhs were nomads and therefore lower on the evolutionary chain, so to speak, in their minds, um, this martial resistance sort of reinforced uh, 
um, the images they already had of nomadic peoples as um, undercivilized, um, just wanderers um, who were also prone to, to violence um, in some respect. And it's just it's it's reinforced by their their conceptions of what nomads were and you know the the typical nomad um and i i say this in the book you know you, you think nomad the, you know nomadic empires and nomadic peoples the mongols are the first ones that, that, that many people think of and the mongols do not have a a good um reputation and um you know that that reinforces these ideas of nomadic peoples and it's certainly uh, prevalent in the 19th century and in their attitudes towards uh, the Sioux and the Kazakhs. The other thing, too, that you note is that this colonization uh, with all of these assumptions about the Sioux and about the Kazakhs um, and, and how they were depicted also served as a way in which to develop and recognize and narrate um, both American and Russian nationalisms in the latter half of the 19th century. So talk about this relationship between, say, the self and the other and the formation of American and Russian kind of national identity. Uh, it gets tied up very much, I think, with, with the land. Uh, and, it, you know, in the case of the United States, this notion of uh, being an empire of liberty and, um, you know, a, a chosen people um, who, are, who are destined to colonize the, the, the continental interior and, and utilize the land. Um, we also tend then to, to, to celebrate um, the way in which we have conquered nature. And I think the, the Russians have a similar sort of per perception. And, and the, the notions that um, progress uh, are very much uh, a part of particularly the American identity, um, the way in which we celebrate the industrious, brave uh, pioneer um, tackling and, and conquering um, the wilderness, conquering nature. Um, I'm not sure that in the Russian case, these perceptions um, filter down to the peasants. I don't know that the Russian peasants celebrate themselves quite the way in which um, uh, the American pioneer um, is, is celebrated uh, or the way in which they celebrate themselves uh, in the period. And so I think the the identity, particularly for the Americans, uh, it, it, it's reinforced by this notion of the pioneer who can conquer the wilderness, who can uh, lead civilization into uh, this this wild land that is um, being underutilized by um, by Native Americans, and so it, it becomes very much a part of our, our self-perception as a rugged individualist, whereas Russians tend to be more communal, tend to be more, uh, when they do settle in, in the steppe, um, they tend to uh, create an environment similar to what they, they left, and they tend to congregate um, a little bit more than what you would get um, in the American West. And so the 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 identity I think is is reinforced more strongly in the case of the United States um, than um, in Russia. And in both cases too, peasants and pioneers, because they're not they, they they're traveling by foot or by, by horseback or even later by train, um, they're not necessarily leaving 
what they they, they um, have to perceive of themselves. Um, and so it, it creates this interesting dynamic of the way in which their identity is formed. Um, because if you're leaving, say, from Virginia or Ohio and then going and settling in the Dakotas, you're not going anywhere different. The terrain might change, but you've not crossed a boundary. You've not crossed uh, a, a you know a major um, uh, ocean or something like that. Uh, right. It's not in the sense of like say the Pied Noir in in Algeria or uh, the the um, South African settlers or in in Zim- in, in Zimbabwe, for example. Or uh, where you have these other kind of settler colonial societies where, or even first the American colonists, right? Where you get the creation of a very distinct sense of self and identity that's separate than the oh, metropole. Exactly. And Australia is uh, another example. Yeah, Australia too, right. Inter- that is interesting, actually. I mean, I, maybe, I guess this is one of the, an important distinction between, say, a transcontinental empire versus a continental empire. Would oh, you yeah, say? I think so. Um you know, when when you're, you know, we even do it now, right? If if you were to drive from, uh, say, Pennsylvania out to California, yeah, you know you're crossing into Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, but but at the same time, there's that comfort of knowing, I pull into Indianapolis and I can go to a, a restaurant that's I have here in Pennsylvania or I have here in California. There's no real sense of that you've you've moved somewhere different, that you've really crossed a boundary. Um, and so I, I think in this sense, you know, the, the same attitude is there. Certainly um, in the 19th century, you've not crossed anything um, that says I'm someplace new and, and dramatically different. Now, as a colonization proceeds in both Russia and the United States, you begin to get to the development of institutions of kind of colonial management, for the lack of a better term. Um, you know, you get the Bureau of Indian Affairs and uh, the Russians have it within the Internal Affairs Ministry are used to administer these these new colonized lands. So talk a bit about the different ways in which both the American and similarities between how the United States and Russia manage these colonial areas. One of the things that struck me um, is that Russia kept these new territories under um, military governor generals um, and managed them um, through the military apparatus, whereas by the 1840s, the United States had moved to a civilian administration of territories. Um, The other thing that struck me, and I hadn't thought about this until the comparison, um, is the way in which the United States, very early on um, in the uh, post-independence um, period in the 1790s and early part of the 19th century, determined that these territories would be managed so that they could be incorporated into um, the, the federal governance structure equal to the original 13 colonies. So when Ohio is brought in, they're going to have reap all the same benefits to senators, a representative. They're going to have constitutions. They're going to have um, structures that are similar to the original 13. And 
in many respects, I think that was a, a genius of the early American expansion, that we can't bring in these new territories as stepchildren to the original 13. And so civilian management of these new territories in the United States um, was so different than uh, what the the Russians um, constructed as they would bring in Siberia, areas in the Caucasus, certainly in Central Asia, that by keeping these under military management, um, you create a, a very sort of different administrative structure than what you might have in, um, the, you know, for lack of a better term, old Russia, uh, the, the European part of the empire. And that, I think, was uh, an interesting difference that I hadn't necessarily considered because um, before I started on this project, my uh, sort of understanding of expansion, it was based on the conflicts, uh, you know, the Battle of the Little Bighorn or, you know, some of the, 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 uh, the battles that were fought between um, the American military and Native Americans, uh, Geronimo and the, the Navajo and the Apaches. And so it was uh, my general thinking about that, that relationship was the military was, um, was helping to administer these territories, uh, but that really wasn't the case. Um, and so I found that, that difference um, very, uh, very, very interesting. But that also goes back to the general governing natures of, of the Russian Empire and the United States in the 19th century. Um, and so I found that difference um, to be an important difference that I hadn't considered before uh, I started this project. Now, you you briefly dwell on the question of, of genocide in the Sioux and Kazakh cases. And um, and while you, you disagree with the, the application of genocide in, in both of these cases, you nonetheless acknowledge, you know, ethnic cleansing. So talk about this debate and question about genocide in relationship to American and Russian colonization. It's such a controversial topic um, that in, in all uh, candor, I wasn't sure I was necessarily qualified to tackle it. And, and it's my also, the other concern I had as well is that um, in, in, in taking on a topic like this, um, I'm not convinced yet that um, the absence of intent still constitutes uh, genocide. And so I didn't feel that I could give justice to the debate, particularly in the American case. Um, there's no question that Native Americans, not just the Sioux, um, suffered um, following first contact. Um, and that there, there's no question in my mind that there were many Americans who uh, had no hesitation um, in celebrating um, the destruction of various tribes um, as obstacles to expansion. But I don't know that they represented necessarily the majority of Americans. Um, 
they were probably a minority. They were Native Americans were perceived, I think, more as a nuisance than somebody that or something that ought to be um, eliminated. And so, I I think that if I were to um, take on genocide, um, it it's become such a um, divisive issue in the debate that um, I might lose sight of what I was trying to do in the comparison. And so that's why I was, I was hesitant to, to take it on, but I wanted to acknowledge it um, because certainly in the case of, um, of the Kazakhs, um, there are many Kazakh historians who will argue that in the 1930s, the Soviet government attempted um, um, genocide. Um, and just looking at the, the statistics from the 1939 Soviet census, when you have a population drop of about a million people, um, then, okay, maybe the debate needs to happen. But I'm not convinced that it was necessarily the intent of the government. And the whole question of intent seems to be driving some of the debate. Now, both both Russia and and the United States, ha of course, had an ideology of uh, a civilizing mission, and and I was in in regards to this and and the differences uh, and similarities between the Russian and American civilizing missions and how they understood their role and what they were trying to do are, I think, are really interesting to think about. And there were two statements that you made that kind of summarized the American and Russian views on assimilating the Sioux and the Cossacks. So there's the American statement, um, I think it was made by a, um, a, a preacher or something like this, that who said, kill the Indian in him and save the man. And then you wrote a statement that says, Russians did not want to make Kazakhs become Russians. They merely wanted the Kazakhs to be less like Kazakhs. So how do you understand these two positions of on assimilation, and what were their consequences for the Sioux and the Kazakh people? The um, the, the statement "Kill the Indian, save the man" um, was uh, made by Colonel Pratt for the uh, Carlisle Indian School, and it I think symbolizes um, the, the American attitude that what you have to do to in order to raise their civilization, you have to make them more like Americans. Uh, and, and part of that was the Christianizing aspect to it, because they, when they viewed uh, Sioux or, or even Native American um, spirituality, um, it was paganism, it was heathenism. And so the idea is that you, if you can take out many of the uh, traditional um, features of these people, these cultural features, these social features, if you are able to uh, Christianize them, if you are able to teach them industry and teach them um, how to become farmers versus their nomadic wandering and these sorts of things, then what you're, you're doing is you're taking the Indian out of him, but you're saving the man. So it's it's the backwardness of being Indian that they want to eliminate, and the only you know if you if you're able to do that, then you you, you save the human, but you have to kill the tradition, you have to eliminate the tradition. Um, I don't get the sense in the Russian case that that was the intent. What they because there's actually a symbiotic, a stronger symbiotic relationship between the Russians and the Kazakhs. The Kazakhs tr contribute um, to uh, the economy. 
primarily as producers of livestock, horses, cattle, uh, sheep, goats, and so forth. And so that, uh, that economic relationship was much stronger between the Russians and the Kazakhs than it ever was between the, um, the Sioux uh, and the Americans. The, the Kazakhs contribute to the imperial economy in a way in which many Native Americans uh, never did or weren't really allowed to either um, through the expansion. And so they don't uh, want necessarily to eliminate um, the Kazakhs, they do want them to settle because through settlement, um, that, that reduces potential conflict uh, between the Russian peasants and if you can get Kazakhs to, to settle and become farmers, uh, then there's not a need for the military to intervene to separate the, the, the two groups uh, in the way they had to during the Kinesari Kasimov rebellion, for example. Um, and so it's if they could become a, a settled population, they can, the Russians were fine. Keep your language. Um, it, it, you know, keep your religion. We're not going to convert you to orthodoxy. Um, become loyal subjects to the empire as opposed to abandoning your language, abandoning your culture. It's really only by the 1890s and early part of the, the 20th century that the fear of Tatarization, the fear of Islamic fanaticism, begin to swell up in the Russian mind and the Kazakhs are becoming um, somehow now Muslim fanatics. And so that's when they decide, okay, maybe Russification might be the policy we need to pursue um, rather than uh, just you know, leaving their culture alone, leaving their language alone, and these sorts of things. Whereas the United States was far more keen to intervene in the cultural uh, constructions of these people, um, far more um, uh, far more interested in intervening um, to eliminate the language, which was considered inferior, um, and would keep them bound to a tradition that was doomed to extinction. And I don't think the Russians um, saw extinction um, as a likelihood. Travelers, visitors to the Russians, uh, or to the Russian Empire, uh, and this is where the quote comes from uh, for the title of the book, The Touch of Civilization. An American traveled there, and he, what he perceived was uh, the Kazakhs were going to follow the same route as uh, Native Americans, that they only have one or two choices, right? Uh, assimilate or extinction. But the Russians themselves don't necessarily hold that view. It was the, the visitors to the Russian Empire that, that held that view. And this goes to, to my final question. Um, you you asked, of course, in your introduction whether the United States was an empire, and we've talked about this question already in our conversation, and of course the answer is yes. So given that you see the United States as an empire, what kind of empire was it, and how does the Russian example help shed light on it? In many respects, the United States was, a, uh, I, I think, um, a, a far more intrusive empire into the lives of the, the, um, the indigenous population. Um, certainly the, the way in which, for example, uh, education was handled, um, in, in the way in which um, the Native Americans were uh, settled or forced to settle on uh, reservations that were really insufficient to the needs of sustaining the population. Uh, the way in which the United States government 
um, really consumed um, the economies of these people and tried to force new economic methods on the on these people. Um, there were many observers in the 19th century who said, you know, the land you're forcing the Sioux to settle on is not at all conducive to agriculture. It is conducive to livestock raising. So let's give them cattle. Let's give them horses and allow them to move around the reservation. Um, and the United States government rejected that notion, tried to force agriculture on these people without providing the, the tools, the implements, the means uh, necessary to become successful. Um, the Russians were a, a far less um, uh, intrusive empire in terms of forcing people to abandon their culture, abandon their traditions, abandon their uh, their ways of life uh, in, in the way that the United States um, resembled the British in Australia or resembled the British uh, in South Africa. Um, in some respects, the Russian Empire, I would argue, was was uh, more comparable to uh, the British in India uh, than the United States ever was. And so it, it one of the things that the comparison did is it, it made me actually rethink some of my earlier interpretations about the Russian Kazakh experience, um, because I, I had been trained, you know, in the 1980s or early 1990s. Uh, so much of our literature was one of, of constant conflict and constant um, struggle between the Russians and the Kazakhs. And certainly, had I not undertaken this comparison, I probably wouldn't have read Richard White's book, The Middle Ground, which made me rethink the nature of the relationship between the Kazakhs and the Russians and rethink my earlier um, sort of interpretations. Um and so I find the United States to be a far more intrusive empire than than, than the Russians were in in Central Asia. I don't know that we could say that the Russian Empire wasn't intrusive in other respects um, with indigenous populations, but in this case study, um, it was uh, it was sort of a, an eye opener for me um, to have to rethink some of my earlier assumptions about the Russian Kazakh relationship. That was sensible. Associate Professor in History at North Carolina University in Charlotte, specializing in the history of Russia and Central Asia, imperialism and colonialism, and the American West. He's the author of The Touch of Civilization, Comparing American and Russian Internal Colonization, published by University Press of Colorado. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!
what you're gonna do when you grow up and have to face responsibility. Will you spend your days and nights in a pool room? Will you sell cats of madness to the neighborhood? Little get more pride. You already know. Pain and misery. Little ghetto boy, your daddy was blown away. He robbed that grocery store. Don't you know that was a sad, sad old day? All of your young life, you've seen such a misery and pain. Go young man.